Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Sir, you made a, uh, some jokes over the weekend at the Al Smith dinner about the president. I mean, I'm not just an overrated general. I am the greatest, the world's most overrated. <laughs> I take it to mean that, that you're not going to change your, your approach here to talking about partisan politics, correct? I believe that uh, military officers, active or retired, need to carry on with the tradition handed down from George Washington's day to George Marshall's day, where we defend this experiment in democracy. Uh, But those of us who especially are referred to as general uh, for the rest of our lives, whether we like it or not, have to be very careful about entering into political assessments of elected leaders. I think that we are so divided, we're so corrosive in how we address certain issues that we've forgotten we need to be hard on the issues. We certainly should have spirited intellectual discussions about issues from health care to national security, but we don't have to be hard on each other. If we can come back to a a common ground of unity, of governing with a sense of friendship toward one one another in America, a sense of respect for one another, that will draw, that example will draw allies to us. Jim Mattis was the 26th Secretary of Defense of the United States. He held that job after retiring from 44 years of service in the United States Marine Corps. Secretary Mattis has just written a book called Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. I just had a chance to sit down with the secretary to talk about his book, his career, and national security. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break to hear from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show, and it is great to talk to you again. Yeah, good morning to you, Michael. It's, uh, it was a pleasure serving alongside you. So, sir, you recently published a book on leadership. It's called Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. It's a terrific book. It chronicles your career and the lessons about leadership that you learned along the way. And I want to ask you a number of questions about that. But before we do that, I want to ask you a couple of other things, get your reaction to a couple of things. The first is your reaction to what's happened in northern Syria in the last couple of weeks. How do you think about that? Well, the, uh, the Syria situation has always been one of the most complex uh, that I dealt with. I, I'd never seen anything with so many different motivations, so many different disparate groups, uh, many at odds with each other, from great powers to local terrorists. So it is a very frustrating environment. It's a chaotic environment. But I think we have to fall back to first principles as we look at it. And uh, is is the threat coming out of there a threat to the United States? And I agree with those who have assessed it to be a direct and an indirect threat to our country. Uh, and so we're going to have to remain engaged in this. Uh, it's not an endless war, but it's certainly been a long one. And there's at times uh, when you, you just want to throw up your hands in dismay and say, let's walk away. But the fact is we've not been hit in the mainland by foreign terrorists who have sworn to hit us since 9-11. And that's in no small part due to the campaign we've run. So I believe that we have to remain engaged in the region with our allies uh, and partners and continue to stand up for our interests. And, sir, when you say direct threat and indirect threat, what are you talking about? Well, these are people that have sworn that they are going to attack, whether it be characterizing us as the great Satan or simply America or simply our values of democracy as being um, anti uh, their view of the world. Uh, the idea that they're just going to go away, I, I think is, is very naive. Uh, I've dealt with them, as you know, Michael, since 1979 in one form or another, and I, I would not uh, in any way patronize this enemy. Uh, we've seen the attacks in Europe, in Brussels, in Paris. Uh, we've seen where they've gotten through and this is, a, this is a direct threat to what we stand for, to our people, to the safety of the democracies. And we're going to have to band together with like-minded nations because no nation on its own can deal with this. Yeah. Sir, you made a, um, some jokes over the weekend at the Al Smith dinner about the president. And I take it to mean that, that you're not going to change your, your approach here to talking about partisan politics, correct? I believe that uh, military officers, active or retired, need to carry on with the tradition handed down from George Washington's day to George Marshall's uh, day, where we defend this experiment in democracy. Uh, but those of us who especially are referred to as general uh, for the rest of our lives, whether we like it or not, 
have to be very careful about entering into political assessments of elected leaders. I, I don't believe that's the military's role in a democracy. And do you think that those folks who do that somehow put the Department of Defense and the U.S. military at some risk, raise questions about about whether they're political or not? Because I have the same same sense about intelligence officials who who speak out, right? That people will say, geez, I wonder if the currently serving folks are as partisan. Well, I think and you look back through history <clears throat> and you look at Praetorian guards and the role the military eventually comes uh, to be so authoritative in certain times in history about who will be the political leaders, we should be remembering that the reason we have civilian control of the military is to avoid that. And if active duty officers are looked at askance by the political leaders because they're concerned with how these officers will, once they get out of the military or intelligence officers, uh, get out of the out of the intelligence services, how they will characterize private discussions in the messy world of trying to put together policy to deal with the challenges we face. <clears throat> I don't think that's helpful to the uh, to the governance of the country, and I think the military needs to stay strictly apolitical. And by the way, Michael, this is not just about me. My predecessor in office, Ash Carter, Secretary of Carter who was uh, President Obama's last Secretary of Defense, he would studiously avoid making political assessments, even to the point of uh, telling congressmen and congresswomen that he would not answer a certain question because it was political. So this is not just about me. This is not just about this administration. This is about a more than 200-year-old tradition that we do not make political assessments. We defend this country we don't tell the American people uh, how to vote or how they should uh, consider political leaders who've been uh, basically invested with the authority of the Constitution. Do you, though, sir, worry about the state of our politics, not talking about one party or the other? Do you worry about the state of our politics and the impact that it's having on national security? I worry a great deal about it. I have fewer concerns about our adversaries. Uh, destroying this country than our own ability to. And let me put this in context. Uh, right now, I think that we are so divided, we're so corrosive in how we address certain issues that we've forgotten we need to be hard on the issues. We certainly should have spirited intellectual discussions about issues from health care to national security. But we don't have to be hard on each other. And we've turned this into a very corrosive debate that does not allow compromise. Yet our whole government was set up with three co-equal branches of government and a bicameral legislature to boot. Without compromise, you cannot govern the country. So I understand in an election, it's about dividing the country. Vote for me, not for you. I'm smart. He's dumb. Uh, she's wrong, I'm right, however you want to characterize it. Sometimes it's not very civil. Okay, I got it. We're in a democracy. gets pretty raucous, especially in election time. But when elections are over, when we're done with the dividing and we voted, then we need to govern, and that takes unity. That takes compromise. 
and it's as if we're in a constant election cycle now, yeah. vice and election, and then we roll up our sleeves when it's over, and we work together, and we govern the country for the betterment of, the, of future generations. It's as if we've forgotten that, and now we characterize our adversaries as eternally wrong, eternally evil, and not to be compromised with. Our adversaries have got to be cheering uh, as far as weakening our, ourselves as a country. Yeah. I'm wondering, sir, as a as a historian and as a lover of history that you are, if you've seen a period of time in the past, either in U.S. history or in the history of other countries, that's similar to what's happening here and in Europe and in other developed countries, and if that history is instructive for us today in any way as we try to work our way through this. I know that's a tough question. Well, uh, you, yeah, you no, it, it's a, it's an excellent question. I think, Michael, because you just brought up that this is not unique to our democracy right now. I mean, we we're all watching what's going on in in the UK with Brexit, uh, in France, uh, in Germany, uh, and we've got to look at whether or not history gives us analogous situations. Not that it's a perfect roadmap, but it's the only thing we have to light the path ahead. And certainly, if you look at the United States going into the Civil War, uh, you understand why Abraham Lincoln in 1839, when he was only 29 years old, and I think in his first recorded speech, said that he was less worried about falling from an enemy, an external enemy, than an internal. He said that not all the armies of Europe and Asia and Africa combined with all the money in the world, uh, even if they had Bonaparte for their leader, could cross the ocean and invade our country, cross the Blue Ridge Mountains and take a drink out of the Ohio River. Uh, basically, he said that the bigger threat was internal division and what happens when people stop listening to one another, when they no longer believe in the, in the uh, wisdom of having good discussions and listening to each other and coming up with good policy, rather they believe only that they are right and everyone else is wrong. And so as we look at this uh, and we watch what happened to our country in the Civil War, or we watch how other countries have fallen, uh, one point comes true, and that is nations with allies thrive and nations without allies die. Well, that's even true on a domestic plane. If presidents don't have allies in the opposing party, and all all governments need uh, need some sort of a counterbalance, it's good to have parties in this country. But if you can't eventually work together, if you can't make allies and reach across the aisle, then a compromise-based government like ours is that requires compromise simply cannot stand. And this was a fear of the founding fathers, and it was a fear of young Abraham Lincoln. And he watched this unfold before his very eyes, and he was thrust into the position of having to save the Union. Uh, so this is not something that I would dismiss lightly based on what I've read in history. Okay, Mr. Secretary, let's chat about the book, which again, I think is terrific, and I hope people go out and buy it. Let me ask you, why did you write it what is the audience that it's aimed at, and what do you hope folks will learn from it? Well, uh, a couple uh, 
impulses got me to write it. Uh, one was one of my mentors of many years uh, reminded me when I got out that I'd been very fortunate uh, to be often in positions where I could see big developments as they as they were initiated and as we went through their cycle of planning and execution. And he said, you know, you learned a lot from your reading. Maybe you'd think about writing what you learned down so that others can learn from what you experienced. And I wasn't real eager to do it. I didn't see myself as a writer. Uh, but uh, at one point, I think I got weak need, and I said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, boy, did I learn how much work there goes into writing a book and looking at a blank piece of paper and trying to figure out what can you put down that might help others. And that's the audience uh, that I, I had to think about. And that was, certainly it was young military leaders, NCOs, non-commissioned officers, sergeants and lieutenants, captains and majors, uh, colonels and generals. Uh, I had been very fortunate. Uh, it wasn't just merit. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and eventually worked my way through tactical or direct leadership and then more or less executive and indirect leadership where you have layers between you and the others. And then, of course, strategic leadership at the top levels. And I learned things at each level that were probably uh, not unique to me, but by putting them in the circumstance I was in, I thought it would help others to learn. And the audience would be the military guys, but I've been somewhat surprised at the number of business people who are are referring to the book now. And I think it has to do with the takeaways from the book. I mean, some things are as simple as what we would call Leadership 101. Uh, I don't think anything in the book is so unique to me uh, that I discovered it. Uh, all I did was employ it as we must as leaders, each of us in our own way. And I think that uh, the takeaways are, number one, make sure your people know you care about them. People want to be part of something bigger. Yes. But yes. they can't feel like they're part of something bigger in that organization if your concern is external. You've got to be really concerned about how they're doing, their hopes, their dreams, especially when it's something like the military where they're going to put their lives on the line. Another point though, as I went up higher, uh, I, I really uh, grew to understand why the Marine Corps, except in joint operations, combined operation with other services or other countries, doesn't use command and control. Uh, they use the words command and feedback. Uh, they The Marines teach you to set a very clear strategy or very clear aim for what you're doing. Uh, you clarify and confirm it with your troops. You make certain they understand why they're doing it, what you want them to do. Uh, and you set up good feedback loops and data display loops. You get out and about. You talk to everybody, make sure they're on the same page. But once they feel their ownership of the mission, take your hands off the steering wheel and let them guide let them use their initiative and aggressiveness to carry out what you put a lot of thought into defining is the mission. And as you do this, you're setting a culture of unity, a culture of teamwork. And that way you, you take advantage of everyone feeling a sense of ownership, but you're there to make certain they're ready. They're prepared for it. They're given all the support they need 
and that allows uh, that allows for an awful lot of advantage accruing to your side because opportunities in the marketplace, opportunities on the football playing field, opportunities on the battlefield, they open and close very rapidly. And if you don't have people who are well-trained in the basics and understand your intent, then they won't take advantage of those opportunities, Michael. And I think that I get an awful lot of credit for things that subordinates using their initiative and aggressiveness carried out. And that was simply because I told them what needed to be done and I made sure they understood it. I clarified and confirmed it with them and then uh, basically unleashed their initiative. So this this focus on on people was certainly resonates with me. Is it the same across all three categories of leadership that you talk about, direct, executive, and strategic? So is, it, it, is that focus in all three of those areas and you're just implementing it in different ways? I, I think that's a very fair way to characterize it. At, on the direct leadership level, you're reminded that uh, the, the President of the United States with the consent of Congress can declare you an officer in the military, but only your subordinates, your troops, can declare you a leader. And what they're doing is they're determining whether or not you have their best interests at heart, whether or not you know what you're doing uh, and, and are capable, and they're the ones who declare you a leader. And you're a leader because the whole system recognizes you can't do this on your own. No general wins a battle on his own. So you've got to bring others along. And that same lesson practiced differently at the indirect level means you spend more time writing out what you want your troops to do. When you go from leading a platoon of 40 sailors and Marines in the infantry to leading 40,000 troops, You've got to write it down, and then you've got to go around and make very clear and answer questions about what it is you want to do so the youngest sailors and Marines know it and understand it because they will surprise you with just how much they can do uh, to carry out your mission if they really feel ownership of it, if you've been out there and explained what is going on and why. But when you get to strategic leadership, that's where you have to be able to work, for example, with political leaders like you and I did, uh, Michael, people who were elected to office based on the aspirations of our people. And yet, in many cases, you and I had to bring the grim polarities, the grim realities, so to speak, into those discussions about, I know you want to work on health care and education, right. but this is an enemy that means what they say and we're going to have to stop them, and we're going to have to work with allies to do it. And as you as you address those polarities of human aspirations and of grim realities of true adversaries, uh, whether you're FDR or you're any other president in our history, you have a very tough time reconciling that. And so as you, a military or intelligence officer or even diplomatic officer rises in rank uh, in the U.S., this is where you go into the very messy business of setting priorities and policies and strategies. And, it, and it's, it's fraught with tension. So many of the lessons you learn at the direct leadership level, you have to adapt. But the fundamental lesson is that tr trust is the coin of the realm, whether with your 40-man platoon 
or when you're a commander like I was of U.S. Central Command and walking into rooms where you have to discuss uh, joint efforts with kings or prime ministers or sultans or emirs or presidents. And you just apply the lessons you learn differently, but you always try to find the common ground. Yeah. And I used, I used George Washington's approach to leading a revolutionary army. Uh, and and it was very, very methodical. Uh, he believed in showing respect to others. He would listen and learn from them. He would listen with an intent of really learning what they needed. Then he would help them, and then he would lead. So listen, learn, help, lead. And that, that process applied differently at the direct level, the executive level, and the strategic level, served me pretty well once I'd done my study of how he'd done his job as a leader of the Army. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Secretary Mattis. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. You know, one of the one of the things that struck me, and I did not know this about you, but you served as a Marine recruiter at a pretty tough time, right? It was just in the aftermath of of Vietnam, and I wonder what your pitch was then to why someone should become a United States Marine, and if your pitch today would be the same or any different, or how do you think about that? Yeah, following the Vietnam War and the uh, we. Uh, got rid of the draft in the country, which had motivated many of us to sign up in the first place. Uh, we had to find a way to recruit a volunteer force, and the quality of people we needed meant that we would be competing with uh, with the civilian marketplace, with those who wanted to go to college first rather than go into the military initially. And eventually we had to go to Xerox Corporation that taught us to do what's called a needs assessment. And we would lay out all sorts of different colored uh, tags, basically. and had to do with, would you like 30 days paid vacation here? You don't want health care. In another case, we put down physical fitness, pride of belonging to the best, Mm -hmm. uh, things like that. But the idea was to get to know the people and try to draw in people who would be very uh, willing to embrace the Marine ethos of an elite fighting force. I don't think that's changed over many years. Now, how we convey it, we, we do more social media today, but the message, the fundamental message, is we're looking for young men and women, patriots, who are willing to look beyond the hot political rhetoric and put their lives on the line to protect this experiment that you and I call America. And that remains the same because... Uh, The Marines are a very young force. They like most of their force to be in and out in four years. Uh, And what we want are young people who will return to civilian society as better citizens. And so when you look at the the reason why they come in and what we want to return to the American society, 
is a citizen steeped in an understanding of how precious this freedom we have is, how, how precious and worth defending freedom really is, uh, then I don't think the message has changed much over over the centuries. Just a couple more questions on leadership, sir. You've mentioned Abraham Lincoln. You've mentioned George Washington. Is there a leader in history that you particularly admire, given all the history that you've read? Well, there, there's quite a few, yeah. And, I, I mean, obviously in history, I, uh, you know, Scipio Africanus is a great leader. Uh, I very much enjoy studying Mandela and the way he brought South Africa out of apartheid and then helped heal the country. Uh, our own Americans, you've mentioned several of them there. But let me mention three others. My first platoon sergeant was a corporal named Wayne Johnson. That's the senior enlisted man, supposed to be a staff sergeant. But in the post-Vietnam era, a lot of our NCOs had gotten out. And Corporal uh, Wayne Johnson, of course, was immediately nicknamed John Wayne by his, <laughs> by his fellow sailors and Marines. But here was a young man, immigrant from the British West Indies, uh, and he was uh, he was the one who taught me how to be how to be a lieutenant, basically, and how to be how to be tough, but be tough for your troops, not on your troops. Mm. He was replaced by Corporal Manuel Rivera, also an immigrant from Mexico, uh, and Corporal Rivera was a very authoritative, uh, a very very authoritative leader, NCO. There was no nonsense to him, and yet late at night, if we'd had trouble with a Marine during the day, I could see him off standing with him, talking with him, and coaching him. And I saw the influence he had and how he exercised leadership. And my third uh, leader I admired greatly, my third platoon sergeant, uh, came from Quebec, Rémi Lebrun. And he was the sort of uh, coaching leader who was constantly alongside the troops, teaching them to shoot better, teaching them to run faster, teaching them to get over obstacles faster, talking to them about uh, their home life. He was he was like a father figure, and yet he was just uh, he was just harder than petrified woodpecker lips. They <laughs> they all knew the toughest guy in the platoon was their coach, and so I learned a great deal from these young guys. Uh, when I was a 21-year-old second lieutenant, as these corporals and sergeants uh, basically taught me my my job as an officer. Mr. Secretary, maybe we can finish up in the last 10 minutes or so here by talking about some national security threats and challenges facing our nation. And maybe I'll just throw out some issues and get you to react to them in terms of the threat or challenge that they pose to us. And maybe I'll start with maybe the toughest long-term challenge, which is China. How do you think about that? Well, China is coming back into its own, but it's good to remember that in the 250-year history of our country, uh, we have only had adversarial relations with China between about 1947 and 1972. Now, it's becoming adversarial right now as China has adopted some worrying practices. Uh, they're shredding trust in the South, South China Sea by militarizing islands that have never been militarized in our, in our uh, recent history, recent being several hundred years. 
they are using massive debt uh, that they're piling on other countries, uh, debt that uh, those countries are not able to accommodate. And we've seen them taking uh, part of it, part of uh, Sri Lanka's port as, as collateral, for example, in exchange. But when we see this ideological fight going on, when we see what's happening in Hong Kong and the way they're, they're trying to impose their authoritarian state model over people who do not want that model, uh, when we watch their state-run capitalism uh, basically not playing by the rules uh, that came out after World War II about how we would uh, have fair trade um, when we see the intimidation they're applying there in the South China Sea uh, and ignoring the international rules-based order, for example, uh, the tribunal decision on who, who uh, owns one of the island uh, areas there in the South China Sea, and it ruled in favor of the Philippines. Uh, when we see the pernicious theft of all the valuable intellectual property that's going on that's orchestrated even by the government. We're going to have to figure out how China and the United States are going to manage their differences. We have two nuclear armed superpowers, and we cannot have a, uh, a lack of understanding between us. So I think we need to do so, have more philosophical discussions with China, not just talking about South China Sea or North Korea or or uh, Hong Kong, the, the specific issues, we need to move it up to a strategic discussion about how are we going to get along in this yeah. world. Yeah. And I don't see that happening right now, but we're going to have to do so as we look for areas where we can collaborate and cooperate. But there are some things that we're simply not going to accept in terms of violating the international order and the rules of the road. What about Russia, the other big strategic nuclear power here? Yeah, we're going to have to deal with uh, Putin and Putin's Russia. We we made an attempt. You'll you'll remember when we had Russian Marines and U.S. Marines training together in North Carolina. Yes, for possible uh, joint operations back in the 1990s, and those days are sadly uh, sadly over. Uh, Putin has chosen, uh, in many ways, to try and uh, destabilize countries along his periphery. Uh, he's changed borders in Georgia and the Ukraine using military force. He's mucked around in our elections and European elections. Uh, the reason the murderous Assad is still in power in Syria is because Russia has been their ally. Uh, he would have been out by the Syrian people's uh, efforts years ago without Russia's help. Uh, so we're going to have to deal with this reality, and it's best dealt with, like most issues throughout your and my time in government service, Michael, with a coalition, with an with allies. We cannot deal with this and deter Russia uh, effectively and authoritatively without having allies with us, and that means NATO is critical to America's security and to preventing war, preventing war, deterring war. And we're up against someone like Putin, who is playing his very weak hand very, very well. So uh, we're going to have to deal with the Russia that is, not the Russia we wanted. We wanted a better relationship. All of NATO wanted a better relationship. And 
Well, Putin is, has voted no. Right, he went in a different direction. Exactly. What about North Korea, sir? Well, North Korea is probably the most urgent issue that we deal with right now. And the, uh, the diplomacy has been, uh, I think, tried uh, with some success by the current administration. We don't have missiles arcing up over the Japanese home islands right now. But at the same time, uh, there has been no real progress on lessening the nuclear threat from North Korea uh, or the, uh, the missile program. They, they are both still in existence and nothing has turned them back. So this, again, is going to require like-minded nations to work together to find diplomatic or economic ways of dealing with Korea that makes it in their best interest to abandon those programs that are so worrisome for, for many nations. And then there's the one that you and I spent so much time uh, working on, um, Iran. Yeah. Yeah, well, Iran uh, remains a, a very strong supporter of terrorism. Uh, they have not been hurt by America's counterterror efforts, which have been focused on al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda-related associated uh, movements. Um, and I think that uh, what we're seeing now with Iran is a country that uh, is willing to forego what is in the best interest of their own people and, and basically uh, work for what's in the best interest of the regime because we do not have a problem with, I would say, the Iranian people. We have an issue with the Iranian regime and that regime has been found to kill uh, former prime ministers in Beirut uh, to foment the ongoing conflict and and basically to uh, to uh, keep the Houthis in Yemen uh, on on uh, well supplied and and on the track of continued fighting, even as the UN tries to stop this with the Americans' help and a lot of other nations. Uh, we see what they're doing in Bahrain. We watch what they're doing in Syria. Uh, they even tried to kill the Saudi ambassador less than two miles from the White House yes, they a few did. years ago. Yes, they did. And, and we caught them red-handed. We caught them red-handed, and all we did about it was put the low-level courier in jail, uh, when in fact this was an operation approved at the highest levels in Tehran. Uh, and so if that's a country that would act like that, uh, trying to kill an ambassador in Washington, D.C. with a car bomb uh, in Georgetown, you can imagine uh, what they're like to live near, uh, whether you're Israel or our Arab partners. Uh, there's a lot of concern. And again, like every one of the issues you brought up, Michael, this has to be addressed by America working in concert with allies and partners. We cannot settle this on our own, nor should we try to settle this on our own. We have got to build alliances and partnerships, coalitions to deal with these challenges to national security. Mr. Secretary, you've been you've been amazing uh, with your time, sharing your time with us. Thank you. Just have one one more question, which is if you think about the capabilities that our country has to defend itself against these threats and challenges that are out there, you know, I think about military power. I think about strategic and tactical intelligence capabilities. I think about diplomacy, and I think about those alliances that 
that you've mentioned a number of times. What's your assessment of the health of those capabilities that are so important to us protecting ourselves? Well, the capabilities, uh, certainly we don't have the same overriding uh, advantage that we once had technologically as China rises, Russia puts money into their nuclear arsenal and all. You can see in some areas, including some new areas that you mentioned, hypersonics and all, that we're going to have to once again uh, put a lot of effort into maintaining our our technological edge. But as I look at this more broadly, uh, I would just say that we have to remember that America has two fundamental sources of power in this world. And one of them is the power of inspiration and the other is the power of intimidation. And certainly we need our spies, our sentinels out there watching what's going on so we don't get caught flat-footed. In fact, right now we need to strengthen our, our intelligence services for this kind of world that we're in today, uh, especially being that we've shrunk our military in the last 25 years. Uh, but we also have to remember that at times good exchange programs with foreign students to come to America and learn here may strengthen us as much as any any military effort. In other words, the example of America, if we can show that we can govern, if we can go back to compromising uh, in Washington and coming up with good policies on everything from health care to defense to climate change, if we can come back to a, a common ground of unity, of governing with a sense of friendship toward one, one another in America, a sense of respect for one another, if that will draw, that example will draw allies to us because people want the kind of world that we can, we can deliver. And America is a uniquely capable country in this regard. And I think the more time we spend on coming back together as a people, Sure, have good, strong arguments about the various policies and the issues. But when we're done with that, we, we, come, we come back together and, and we are friendly toward one another. Uh, we, we can show the world how to solve problems and do so in a way that builds a sense of unity and a sense of, of peace and prosperity. And that's where I think we need to really focus right now. Well, that's a great way to end, Mr. Secretary. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us today. Oh, you're welcome, Michael. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. That was Secretary Mattis. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.